Well, welcome, Laura. Laura Gabriella, welcome to the journey. And uh, let me just share just a little bit about what the journey is. And uh, journey is a, a, a podcast that we just have uh, ordinary individuals who have had maybe some type of struggle or some type of obstacle on their on their own path, and how they have overcome that. What have they learned from it? Um, how have they maybe uh, that setback or that failure? How did they fail forward? How did they learn from the um, learn from whatever that obstacle, you know, taught them about themselves. And, um, and I know that you have, uh, you have a story. I, I, you sent me some information about it. I know we've known each other a little bit over the last couple of years. Um, and we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit, but, um, Laura, why don't you, before we get started, why don't you just, uh, share a little bit about yourself, but, um, we start with, uh, what do you do for fun? What does, what does Laura do for fun? Well, I own a five acre farm and I have two horses, so they're my hobby. You know, when I, when I have time, um, I love to ride. Um, lately, also for fun, I've been riding. That's, that's kind of like a new thing, but more than anything, I love the ocean, camping, you know, hanging out with my family. So, so if you if you have, do you have a favorite place by the ocean that you like to go to is there a, a specific place where it doesn't really matter um anywhere with the ocean but Clearwater Florida is actually one of my favorite places to go to gotcha okay all right um and then how did you what how did you get into horses how how tell us a little bit about how um how did the horses come into your life so actually, it's kind of a funny story. Um, my daughter, 17 now, her name is Kate. She, since I can remember every time I asked her, you know, hey, what do you want for your birthday? She'd always say she wanted a unicorn. And um, <laughs> about, let's say, um, probably about seven years ago, I came across an opportunity of somebody was giving away a horse, right? And I'm kind of like a very spontaneous person. And when I get something in my mind, like this is what I want to do, then I kind of, I kind of just jump into it. I do it. And then I figure it out as I go along. Um, <clears throat> I've always liked horses myself, you know, but so anyhow, somebody was given this horse away and I see this ad and I'm like, no way. So then I start looking into boarding and I start like figuring out, well, if I get this horse and I can keep them here, like maybe I can finally make, I think it was her. 11th birthday and I wanted to make this unicorn come true and 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 you know horses are very healing um I'm a single mom and so I thought it would be like something good for me and the kids to get into and so I went and I talked to the lady who um, was giving away this horse um and it was a retired race horse and so anyhow when she agreed to let us have them um I remember spending hours making like a unicorn headband for him. And then I got, you know, the, I got everything set up. And so that's how it came about for the very first time we owned a very, you know, our very own horse. I surprised my daughter with her own unicorn. There you go. Well, that, I can just imagine, I can just imagine uh, the look on her face when, uh, <laughs> uh, and, and so, so you, and the horse complied with uh, having the horn uh, on for at least a period of time, right? Yeah, no, it was awesome. It was awesome. 
So that was our very first horse. It was a short-lived dream. Something ended up happening with the boarding facility. And back then I didn't know like any, you know, legalities, things like that. Um, but then after that, I was like, I'm determined I want to get us our own. And then, so that's how the current horse that I have came about. Okay. So anyway, since then we've been learning how to ride, learning how to take care of them. And then um, eventually I wanted to no longer board my horse and bring him and, you know, have him in, in my backyard. And that was, that was like a dream and a goal that I aspired. And so. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. And, um, and so, well, let me ask you this as we get, we're going to, we'll kind of come back into the horses and where you're at now. And I know that's a whole story in itself, but, um, <laughs> but you're not from the Rockford area, correct? I'm not. So originally I was born in Mexico city and then I moved the United States with my mom when I was nine um, and I moved to Florida so I grew up in Florida my whole entire life and when I moved here I actually didn't even know how to speak English so when um, you moved from Mexico City um, to to Florida yep to the United States yeah okay. uh, I didn't know I was in fourth grade so I went to school literally not knowing how to speak any English at all um, and I think I learned English within a year. And believe it or not, I used to like put on my headphones and I used to listen to Green Day. So I would back in the day with my Walkman, I would rewind my Walkman and write down lyrics that I thought were lyrics, you know, and then I would sing along. And, and honestly, that's how I learned how to speak English, how to read it, how to write it. Interesting. So, so yeah, it was pretty cool. <laughs> so, so, um, so going back, uh, so I, I mean, you were pretty young, but obviously you have some memories of living in Mexico City. So tell us a little bit about what was it like living in, what was that like? Um, I mean, I have nothing but amazing memories of Mexico. We lived, uh, we lived in the city. So we lived in like, like everywhere there were buildings. That's what I remember from it giant buildings you know um i grew up with my grandma my 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 mom had me at a pretty young age she was 15. okay and so i i grew up with her you know my grandma my grandpa and her siblings um my grandpa was an attorney and then my grandmother owned a pharmacy and so i i pretty much i was more like a sibling than anything to my aunts and uncles and to my mom you know um but I remember the food being amazing and the candy. <laughs> um, so yeah, but you know, it, it was, it was, I have great memories of, um, I used to hang out. So I grew up with a bunch of teenagers, you know, and I used to hang out with my uncles and listen to like eighties punk rock and Pesh okay. um, mode, you know, that was like the big thing back then. And I don't know, it was, it was just fun. I mean, they, my uncles always, guarded me, kept me safe, would walk me to and from school, were pretty overprotective, you know. Um, but I had pretty much like a, a regular, you know, childhood. I mean. And, and then yeah. what, then tell us a little bit about the decision, uh, or if you know, the decision of, to move to the United States. What, what was that and, and who was that with? Um, well, so when I was seven, my aunt, uh, my aunt, decided to move to the United States, which is my mom's sister. And then my mom followed, left me in Mexico with my grandparents or with my grandma. My grandfather died when I was four. Um, but she, um, 
ended up coming back when I was nine and saying, you know, hey, I'm going to get married and I want Laura to come with me. And so I remember one day just hopping on an airplane, flying to Florida, and it was completely different. Oh, I, I can just imagine. <laughs> I can just yeah. imagine. So um, I, we ha- I have a couple of people that I, that I know pretty well, and they um, they work in the, um, I'm going to probably get this wrong, but they work with uh, individuals that are in, the, in high school, middle school and high school, and English is their second language. And um and so what, what are some of the things that you remember about, was it, you said fourth grade, you thrust in, you know, you're in fourth grade and not only is everything different, or I would assume was pretty different, but it's not, they're speaking English and, and you don't know English. So what was that like? What do you remember about that? And besides the green day um, <laughs> and how you... <laughs> Yeah, no, um, it was pretty scary, to be honest, you know, because everywhere I would go, I had no idea what people were saying. I mean, I didn't understand. So I remember being, it was kind of like a, like a shock factor to me that I, um, I just, I didn't know what people were saying. I mean, teachers, you know, I remember like they would ask me questions and I would be like, what, you know, like, but um, I, I was enrolled in, um, back in the day, they had ESOL, which was English speaking um, for, of other students, or it, I'm not really sure what it stands for, but it's basically like a class that was designed to teach children to speak English. And so I would get pulled out of my regular classroom and, and go and, and sit with a teacher and you know, she would teach me how to read, how to write. I mean, besides Green Day, obviously, I did have that education. Um, kids, I remember at first, were pretty mean. Um, they make fun of me because I didn't know how to communicate with them. So I do remember that, like, feeling of um, just not, you know, not being able to communicate. It was, it was scary. Sure, it was scary. Sure year but I think that that drove me to want to learn it like really fast you know I remember within a year must have been within a year I I was speaking reading writing fluently wow that's that's pretty impressive um and 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 you don't uh you don't have an accent at all I mean maybe sometimes you do but I don't hear an accent at all so I mean that uh I think under those circumstances, you're going to, it's, it makes sense that you'd be that you'd be motivated, ambitious to um, want to learn just to be able to kind of be at the same pace of everyone else. Yeah. So then you were in Florida for how long and, or, or where that's in grade school. So were you in Florida until you graduated or tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, I lived with my mom for a couple of years, uh, and then I went to go live with my aunt and uncle when I was about 11, um, and then I grew up with them, you know, I uh, until I graduated high school, I lived with them, so until I, I was about 18, and then right around 18, I kind of ventured off on my own. Um, I fell in love, and you know, I decided right after high school, I wanted to get married. And so that's what I did. I ended up getting married and um, had my own little family. So, you know, all throughout my life, I mean, I felt, um, I, it's not that I felt like I didn't belong. I just kind of felt like I didn't have a family of my own ever, you know, and I, I mean, my mom was so young um, that 
we were more like sisters than, you know, so we never really had that mother daughter relationship. Um, and then going to live with my aunt and uncle, you know, they were amazing parents. Um, but I still felt like, you know, these aren't my parents, they're my aunt and uncle. So, um, I just, I felt, I feel like that's really what drove me to get married at such a young age. I just wanted that belonging to feel like I had my own family, my own, you know, someone to call my own having kids, a husband. So, um, so I was married until I was 28. Um, about 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. We were together about 10 years and, um, the relationship just kind of spiraled, you know, it was, it was, it was my dream come true at the beginning of the relationship. But then, um, you know, he started displaying abusive tendencies like later on in the marriage, right around probably eight years. And I mean, all throughout, there were things that were happening in my life that I kind of overlooked and I didn't realize that they were abuse and control, you know? Um, but then right around the eighth year mark, he started being physically abusive to me. And so that was what started kind of like, you know, opening up my mind and opening up my eyes that, you know, he was abusive all along, just in different forms. So, um, at 28, I decided, I mean, it was a vicious cycle that I was stuck in, you know? Um, it was really sad. I mean, he would hit me and I would make up excuses for him. Like, no, you know, he didn't mean that. This is not who he is. Um, and I would always go back. It didn't matter how much I tried to leave or whatnot. For two years, I was stuck in that vicious cycle of, you know, not, not leaving. Um, and then finally, it got so bad that I ended up in the hospital one day and when I ended up in the hospital, the authorities got involved, you know, they arrested him for domestic abuse. And even then though, I was still so in love and so blinded by the whole thing that I wanted to protect him. So I, I like refused to testify against him. You know, he was still the father of my children. He was still a good man who just needed help in my opinion. Um, so I thought, you know, but eventually I decided, um, it was actually, it was actually a judge that told me, you know, you need to leave with your children before you wind up dead. Um, and from that point forward, I didn't know, I didn't have family anywhere else, you know, so, um, I kind of just picked a state where I knew somebody. So here in Illinois, I have an aunt and two cousins. And so one day I packed up a U-Haul and we, we moved to Illinois, but even still, like, it was crazy because even still after I moved, it was like, in my mind, I still wanted him to follow us. Maybe if I move out of state, he'll follow us and we can fix this. We can fix our family. We can work on it. You know, I, I can get him away from the environment that he's in and maybe that'll help him change. Like that was honestly my mindset. And so when I moved to Illinois, um, I kind of, I mean, not that I went crazy or anything, but, you know, I started dating other people and whatnot, trying to kind of the mentality of you have to get under someone to get over someone. And right around three months after my divorce, I ended up pregnant with my third child with Lincoln. Um, and uh, 
So I remember calling my ex-husband at that time. He was the very first person that I told. And, and I was kind of taken back and surprised by his, his reaction. Um, he told me, well, if it's a girl, we can fix our family and I can, you know, think about helping you raise her. But if it's a boy, I'm not going to raise another man's son. And so back then I was just kind of like, you know, okay, that's, it gave me some sort of hope, but then when you get into like, um, the after, so after that point, I ended up finding that my children, my daughter was being abused by him her whole entire life. And so then that response kind of made sense. Like, whoa, you know, this is an extremely sick person. He needs, you know, he needs more than help. So, so, so is your daughter, your, I know you have three children uh, and the youngest one, Lincoln was not with your husband, but your, uh, but your other two, what, what were, what were their ages at the point when you got divorced? So um, Kate and Zachary were from my marriage. And when I got divorced, they were six and eight. Six and eight. Okay. Yep. And, and so that's when we moved to Illinois when they were six years old and eight years old. Zachary was six. Caitlin was eight. Okay, gotcha. All right. And, and so, um, so there's about two years or so where you and your husband were together without children. And then Caitlin was born around that two year mark. And then, and then, and then somewhere along the line, um, the, the sexual abuse started with Caitlin, which you didn't know about until, until much later. It sounds like. Much after. Actually. So I guess I should back up. So I, Kate, so we were dating, but we, I met my ex-husband when I was like 16. So when I, I guess I should back up. Yeah. Maybe I have the timeline strong because we were, we were together. We were, um, we were only together six months before we decided to have Kate. So the actual marriage lasted eight years. So I apologize. Oh, okay. Um, My timelines really, you know, get confused, but yeah, no, because we had them right away. Um, but yeah, she was only eight years old when I found out that she had been sexually abused by him. So sorry to hear that because again, there's, I think that's sometimes what people don't really understand is, you know, as you were talking about domestic violence, it's like, well, the person who isn't aware goes, well, you should just walk away. And, or how could you not know, you know, that, that Kate was getting abused? I mean, but there's so many different variables go on. Maybe if you could just for a sec speak on that, you talked a little bit about the domestic violence cycle and, and the, um, the, you didn't use these words, but we refer to it as the battered wife syndrome. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and so if you could speak a little bit to, in the midst of all that darkness, how there's an, there's enabling going on. There's all the thoughts that we say to ourselves that keeps us there, let alone the, the language that he was using with you as well. So maybe if you could just share a little bit about what that, what that was like and what, what maybe what the fears were and um, what kind of kept you stuck in that cycle. Well, so he was extremely charming. Um, and, you know, back then, I mean, I didn't, I didn't recognize those red flags, right? But um, he was, 
Um, he was extremely manipulative. He was very good at it, but he did it in a very loving way. You know, so it was, um, how do I, it was as if he kept this blindfold over me, right? Because he was affectionate and he was loving and he was caring. And even after he would hit me, he would always come back. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to do that. Um, and, you know, but then as, as things started getting worse, it was, you know, you're never going to be able to do, you're never going to be able to like leave and find anybody better than me. Um, started, you know, planting those, like those seeds of, of self-doubt in my mind, you know, how am I going to do this without him? Even though like, I should have known better, right? I was, he, he, he was always in and out of a job. Um, so I was always like the breadwinner and the, the one that provided financially for the family, but he had me so fooled into believing that I was never going to be able to do anything without him, you know, and, and the way that he went about it, like I said, it was just, um, I don't know. I feel like I was under a spell. I mean, that's kind of, you know, he, he was just really good at hiding the monster that lived within him. Sure. Um, that's the best way that I can describe it. You know, I did, I didn't see it, but I was stuck in that cycle because, you know, I thought he was a good person. I didn't see through the violence. I didn't see through the abuse. Um, and even, even though, so when we back up, um, my son, Zach was six months old and, and let me just, you know, this was very, very new into my marriage. Um, well, by then it was two, we had been married, let's say two years. Uh, we had been married about two years. And I remember being at work and I got a phone call at work from him saying, hey, you need to come home. Zachary just fell off the bed. And I was like, well, why, why was he on the bed? What do you mean? Like, why wasn't he in his crib? Well, he was sleeping so soundly. I left him on the bed, you know, and then he rolled off the bed um, and I can't get him to stop crying. So I remember rushing home to, to try to get to my baby at that time. And when I got home, my baby was sleeping in the crib. When I picked him up from the crib, um, I had never heard a kid or a baby scream like this, but it was kind of like a dog yiping, you know, when they're in pain or when, so the minute that I touched his leg, I knew something was wrong. I told him I have to take him to the hospital and, and it, you know, he kept telling me he's fine give him some Tylenol. He's probably just sore. Just put him back in the crib. And I'm like, no, there's something seriously wrong. I need to take him to the hospital. So I ended up taking him to the hospital and it turned out that his femur was fractured. Um, so I'm sure, I mean, <laughs> yeah. It's not an easy bone to fracture, let alone it's not easy for babies to have fractures just because of how their bones are. So, so, all right. So go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, I, I mean, from the way that the doctors explained it to me, baby's bones are like rubber bands, yeah. you know, it's really hard to snap a rubber band unless you're using physical force to actually like break it or twist it, you know. Um, so immediately they, they did x-rays on Zach. They, the doctors came in, told me, you know, your son has a hairline fracture. He had a big bruise on his face too, but 
this man just had a justification for everything. So the bruise was, oh, there was a vacuum next to the bed. So he must have hit his face on the bruise or on the, you know, and gotten a bruise. Um, that rolled off the bed and hit it on the vacuum. And so anyways, I mean, he had a, he had a justification for everything. And at that point I hadn't seen any signs of violence from him. Mm -hmm. I had nothing, I had seen nothing but nurturing and loving and, you know, I was living in this like fairy tale love story. Um, and so detectives walk in the room, um, in the hospital room, as I'm waiting there for the doctors, you know, to, to release me and the baby. Um, they walk in and, you know, they start questioning me. Where was he? Where were you? I was still in my work clothes. Well, they wanted to go back to the house um, to talk to my ex-husband. And when they talked to him, he was extremely cooperative. He, you know, stuck to the entire story. Um, but the next day they asked me to take Zachary in um, to the, we lived in Polk County, Florida. And so they asked me, you know, bring Zachary in to Polk County. The, um, there was like a forensic science place that I had to take him to. And they put Zachary under like an infrared type machine. They didn't let me go in. They took the baby, they put him in, they came out. The detective was like, the, the results show that the bruise on his face is actually a handprint. So um, I guess I should back up. When I'm my ex-husband, um, he, he had a criminal background. Um, and, you know, un unfortunately, it was always, um, he, he was grooming me the entire time to make me believe that authorities, police, the law, they would just, you know, they were after him. Like they, you know, they were, they were the bad ones. He was a good man, but they were the bad people trying to get him for one reason or another. And so that's the mentality that he had groomed me with for the, you know, for the two years. And so this happened and he had a prior record. That was his first response to me. Of course, I didn't do anything to our child. You know, they're just trying, they're just, you know, targeting me because I have a previous criminal background. So anyhow, long story short, they ended up convicting him. Um, he took a plea bargain. So instead of, of aggravated child abuse, he ended up taking a plea bargain to child abuse. But the way that he, you know, presented it to the family, to me, was, oh, I'm going to do this for my children and you so that I don't go away because I need to be here to provide for you guys. And the whole time, you know, like when I think back, I want to shake my old self and be like, you're an idiot, you know, like, what were you thinking? Um, but looking back at all of that, it's like, how did I not see that? But even then I defended him like, no, he would never do that. He would never hurt my baby. Like, even though there was so much evidence against him, I still defended him in the name of love and I still stuck there. And then it just got worse from there. So, gotcha. yeah, you know, something that you said earlier and I, and I wonder, and, and so I'll just throw this out and I wonder if it plays, plays into it. Right. So obviously this, he, he, all the words that you said, he, you know, was charming. He, you know, consistently was distorting the truth and, you know, talking about being in the, you know, that he was the victim and, um, and all those types of things. But there, there's something you said about when you first came from Mexico to Florida and that first year 
and you were scared and you were alone, even though you were with your mom. But um, I wonder if when the, the idea of having to go out on your own, that this dream of this family that you now had created is now going to be shattered. I wonder if the inside you still remember that fourth grader and, mm -hmm. and you didn't know what the unknown was going to be like. Maybe it'd be like that. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, I totally agree because I, I, I built a codependency to him and I, I definitely carried that from my childhood in some way, shape or form, you know, that fearfulness of venturing out on my own. And when you think about it, like I never really lived on my own, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, w I was either, you know, with my grandparents or with my mom, with her brothers, with my aunt and uncle. So I had never really, you know, especially going directly from living with your family to getting married right away. There was no, there was no me time. There was no, I didn't get to know myself, mm -hmm. you know, I myself through other, through other people. And so I was, I was very dependent on other people throughout my life. That's, it was a big struggle, huge struggle. Um, even after my marriage, when I moved to Illinois, you know, the, the vicious cycle repeated itself. So I got pregnant right away with Lincoln and the guy that I found, I mean, right away, he moved in right away. Cause now we were going to have a kid and I didn't really know him, but that cycle repeated itself for about a year. And luckily this time I was kind of smarter enough to see the red flags and to say, you know what, this is not the life that I want for my children and I, mm -hmm. and I was able to leave. And, and since then I've lived on my own with my children for nine years now. Gotcha. So, okay. Okay. You know, but it was, it was a very hard transition and, and getting, getting to know myself as an individual, you know, without a man in my life, that was, it was difficult, very, very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about how in, in, during that process of not only are you getting to know who you are, but you're now raising three kids. Um, and, and obviously you still have to work. You have to bring, you know, bring it, you know, bring money in. So, so yeah, tell us a little bit about that whole, and they, and your children were young. I mean, they're, I mean, obviously Lincoln was just just born but but both Kate and Zach were were pretty young so uh, so what what do you what do you recall about that and what do you what do you now looking back on that do you remember or that you now know about yourself um well I, I never wanted to be a single parent ever I, I I remember you know because I I did I watched my mom um I also never, you know, not that I look down on people who have children with multiple fathers, but that was honestly like something that in my mind, I never, ever wanted to do. It's just crazy how life turns out. Right. But I, um, I remember, um, having my priorities very wrong for a long time because I had to provide for the family because I was you know, the one that needed to financially support us, I kind of made my job number one. And so my kids took kind of a back burner to that. You know, it didn't matter. Like if they were sick, it was, I can't call into work. Like, you know, so from a very young age, it was, 
because I was fearful. Like if I call into work, I'm going to end up losing my job and I can't afford to lose my job. I have to be able to provide for you, you know? And, and back then it was, I mean, I had daycares, right. But as Kate and Zach got older, it was, you're going to have to stay home today. Like even, you know, unless like it was detriment, like they were, you know, and, and luckily they never really got super, super ill, but from a young age, I left them, they were latchkey kids, you know, I left them home um, while I worked. And if I could go back and I could do that differently, I mean, obviously my kids would have came before my career. Mm -hmm. And I feel that's, I carry a lot of guilt because of that. Um, You know, if I, if I could do it all over again, I would have realized that even as a single parent, you know, I, I, I could have done better than, than I did. I mean, I was doing the best that I knew how, sure. you know, so, you know, but, but when you go back and you think about that, it's, it's, you don't have the mother and the father to support the household and, and give you the opportunity to be home alone, you know, home when your kids are sick or, you know, when they're hurt or, I mean, you just, you don't have that. And then moving to a different state where I didn't have any family. I mean, I moved here thinking, you know, I was going to have my aunt and my cousins to really support me, but um, we live kind of far away from each other, you know, we don't live around the corner from each other. So unless like it was a true emergency, you know, they had their own lives to live. And so I never really had that like support support. It was just literally me and my children and I had to like, figure it out. Sure. Well, and I think, you know, similar to the, the need that you had when you were in fourth grade to learn English so that you wouldn't be in such a vulnerable state of not knowing what was going on and what people were saying, you, you, you also had to figure out how to financially um, not be uh, put in that vulnerable state of being dependent on somebody, right? So it's so th- there is this catch twenty two, you know, being a single mom then or or a single parent, but in this case, single mom. Well, the financial part does play a part in it, and then how do you how do you know when enough is enough, and how do you you know? It's a hard thing to know, especially when there's a fear of not having enough, and then something bad happening. You know, um, mm-hmm. so, so from a career, what, what was, what is, and what was your career? What, what, what was the career that you were building at the time? So, um, I got into sales from a very young age. Um, it, the, my very first sales career was for Nextel. If you remember like the walkie talkie phones back in the day. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> So, and, and I, you know, I started learning that that's what I was really good at and I was making really great money. So I, I mean, throughout my years, it's where, um, I've been most successful. So, um, the, you know, I was making a six figure salary. I was providing, um, a great life for the kids. At one point I was able to put them like in private school um, here in Rockford. And so I thought that, you know, despite of everything that we had been through, I was, I was really proud of myself where I was at, you know, financially and the, in the type of lifestyle that I was able to provide for the kids as a one income household. Sure. You know? um, and so the only downfall with sales is a lot of the sales jobs don't have um, benefits. And so when the Obamacare hit, I remember it was going to cost me the, the, I used to work for a provider selling braces, orthodontic braces. 
and they didn't provide health insurance. And so when Obamacare hit, you know, it was costing me like $1,800 a month for health insurance, like to, for me to insure the kids. And I, that's not something I was going to be able to keep doing. So, um, you know, I had worked myself up to a level where I had management experience, customer, you know, customer service management sales. And so um, there was an opportunity for a supervisory role for the city of Rockford. And I applied, I ended up getting the job and I thought I'm set for life. Like now I have a government job, even though I'm going to take a pay cut on my salary, the benefits are going to make up for that, you know? So I'm going to be able to have health insurance and life insurance and so on. And so I decided to make that move and go work for the city of Rockford. And I thought at that point, you know, this is amazing. I have my life figured out. I'm going to have a retirement and this is where I'm going to work forever. And so um, when, you know, when all of this was transitioning or going on, um, I had taken the kids out of private school right when Zach, well, right when Kate was going into high school. And so we had moved to, you know, Loves Park. They were going to the Harlem school area or school district. Um, and so the kids, like they were really excelling, you know, Caitlin was in volleyball. Um, Zachary was just becoming this really popular kid. Um, and then, so now, you know, they finally, I mean, I feel like my children, you know, as they were growing up, they had like this unstable, you know, bouncing around from place to place. And now for the first time, I, you know, in a really long time, like, we had stability, um, but then here I was again, we were gonna have to move because the city of Rockford, they passed an ordinance that to work for them, you had to live in Rockford. So now I was gonna have to uproot my kids yet again and move them to, you know, even though it's a nearby city, still, I mean, that affects a child, especially when you have, you know, friends and they're part of a community but because of my career, it was, I didn't have a choice. They were like, you, if you want the job, you're going to have to move to Rockford within the next six months. And so going back to the horse, you know, I wanted to have a horse in our backyard. Um, and I thought if we have to move this time, I'm going to buy my dream home. We're going to have our horse in our backyard. And so I'm going to find a farm. And that's how I ended up coming to my five acre farm now. Gotcha. Okay. So now the, so the farm is, it, is in the city limits of Rockford, but, but your kids still stayed at Harlem, right? Yeah. So we still have um, the house at Harlem. Oh, okay. It's rented out. Um, and then I, my fiance also lives in the Harlem district. So we were able to work that out where they were luckily able to stay in the Harlem district. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. So, um, so kind of fast, fast forward. Now, uh, Zach is, uh, Kate is now in, she, she's in high school and, and Zach's in middle school. He's, he's doing, doing pretty well. And, you know, uh, as far as socially, did he play sports? Did he, was he involved with sports too or no? So, um, Zachary tried probably every sport. <laughs> okay. He tried baseball, he tried um, wrestling, but he always had um, issues sticking to things. You know? 
So he was always really, really excited. Mama, mom, I want to try out for wrestling. All right, let's try out for wrestling. He'd make the team. He'd be on the wrestling team for a little bit, and then he would get bored with it. And I would try. I'm like, no, you've committed to the team. Like you need to finish out the season. So it would never last more than a season with him, with every sport. He even tried volleyball. Um, But when there was a summer when they went, the kids went to go visit my mom in Florida. It was the summer right before his 14th birthday. So I think he was 13, 12 or 13 when he went. Um, And she had a little keyboard and he FaceTimed me, you know, and he's playing this keyboard and just figuring out songs on the keyboard. And all of a sudden that, you know, when he came home, his, his birthday was in June and he was like, you know, Hey, what do you want for your birthday this year, Zach? I want a piano. And I went on Craigslist and I found an old beat up piano and I'm like, all right, let's do it. And I brought it home. And honestly, it was the best gift I could have ever given my son because that was the one thing in his life that he committed to. He would play all day, every day. He taught himself how to play, you know, anything from Mozart to like 21 Pilots, you know, new age rock and classical music. I mean, he would sit there for hours and it got to the point where he would play so much that I would be like, okay, it's time to buy him a keyboard and some headphones so he can play in his bedroom because (laughs) (laughs) it would become overwhelming sometimes. But, but yeah, that was, that was his thing. So he loved music. I mean, from a young age, he always loved music and um, he always loved working with his hands, doing things with his hands. Um, So it was pretty cool. Gotcha. So, so that may go back to uh, kind of the influence that you had with Green Day and by your uncles influencing you with music and that it was, had planted seeds somewhere within Zach that just needed a time to kind of emerge, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were definitely, you know, concert goers since the kids were, I don't know, since I can remember, I mean, I drag my kids out to concerts and we travel around and um, go on like family road trips and stuff. That's actually one of, one of the greatest things. And with this COVID thing, I'm like, I just want to go to a concert, you know? (laughs) Sure. I, I I relate to that. I, uh, for, for, I I don't even remember how many years we would, we would go as a family, go to country thunder. And, um, and, and what I, what I enjoyed most about that, um, was just, it was, it would be for four days or typically three and a half days, um, where I can't, I had no phone reception. I could, you know, couldn't, it couldn't be, couldn't get a hold of anybody. No one could get a hold of me. And from two o'clock in the afternoon till 10 or midnight, it was just music and yeah. you're outside. It was, it was, it was always, it was perfect. I, I always, I always enjoyed that. And, and of course this year that, you know, that all got, um, got postponed. So, um, but, so, I know it's terrible. <laughs> yeah. So kind of fast forwarding, uh, I know that you, you, you shared with me and, and that it going into Zach's freshman year, right. He was, mm-hmm. he was at, um, it, what, what was then H nine or, um, at, at Hoffman at that time. Um, mm-hmm. t- tell us a little bit about what happened and, and kind of bring us up to speed with, with Zach at that point. Well, so my kids and I have always had like a really open relationship. 
Um, and because of the circumstances, you know, because of the abusive background and things like that, I just always felt that it was really extremely important to, to talk to them about everything. And I mean, people would probably deem my conversations with my children inappropriate, but we would talk about drug, sex, alcohol, whatever it was, you know. Um, and so Zach, the summer before um, his ninth grade year, he, you know, he, he was quite the little heartthrob. And all the little girls would like, you know, fight for him. And there was always some sort of drama with girls. You know, he's my boyfriend. No, he's my boyfriend. And, I, you know, I, um, I was the type of mom that would tell him, you know, Zach, you're not going to marry. You're not going to get married anytime soon. Like, you know, put your education first. Like, learn from my mistakes type thing, right? Um, and but always treat women with respect and so on. And so right before his ninth grade year, he had came to me and said, Mom, I have to tell you something, you know, I lost my virginity. And I thought, Zach, you're only 14. Like, seriously, that's way too young. You know, and, and he talked to me, I was safe, whatnot. But but the reason why he wanted me to know is because he didn't know how to break up with this girl. So I told him, I'm like, you know, girls have a tendency to get very emotionally attached. Once you start doing things like that, you have to just be safe and, and just be nice, be nice about everything. Anyhow, he ended up breaking up with this girl. Um, and then he ended up losing, like she ended up dating his best friend. Um, and so Zach being the friend he was, he called this kid up and was like, you know, hey, um, I just want you to know, like, I, I, I'm, I slept with your girlfriend. I mean, these are kids that are like 14, 15 years old, mm -hmm. you know, and I and, didn't know this at the time. Go ahead. Sorry. And, and, and he had slept with them when they were boyfriend, girlfriend, not when, not right. when they, so, okay. So, okay, go ahead. But he wanted, because the kid was his best friend, he just wanted him to know like, sure. Hey, I, she's your girlfriend now but I just want you to know over the summer this happened with us uh -huh. so the girl denied it um and Zach kept on social media messaging her please tell him the truth you know why are you lying about it like you know because I guess the best friend the way that he interpreted not Zach being who Zach was you know just wanting to like give him a heads up that it happened or whatever um, the friend interpreted as Zach trying to like break them up in some way. Oh, okay. Sure. So, um, the girl ended up making some false accusations about Zach at that point. Like, yeah, I'll tell him. And so he, she, she ended up making, you know, she ended up claiming that he sexually assaulted her. That's what she told the best friend. And so from that rumors started spiraling, you know, social media, through the school, and I didn't find out um, for a few weeks, you know, that this was happening, but I remember picking Zachary and Caitlin up from, um, I think it was like the very first or second football game of the season that year. Um, this was in 2018, and when I picked them up from school, Kate got in the car, and she was like, you need to tell mom, or I'm going to tell her, and I was like, what's going on? So apparently, at that point, at the school, they had been cornered, you know, somebody was trying to beat Zachary up, so it was just this big, um, I mean, Zach was really upset, you know, and 
I don't know, I teed it off to teenagers or being teenagers, but what I did say to Zachary is, you know what, I think that you need to start making better decisions because God forbid this girl says something like this to the wrong person, you can potentially be deemed a sexual predator for the rest of your life. You know, it's her word against your word. And I'm not sure that that was like the most tactful way to go about that situation. Um, but then, you know, he was really upset. He was very apologetic. Mom, it won't happen again. I made a mistake. I was, you know, I am too young. I shouldn't have done that. Shouldn't have had sex. But like, he assured me like nothing that they're saying is true. And he was really upset that now he had this name, you know, he was branded with this, you know, title throughout the school. So I thought things would cool off, you know, and, um, the next week, I remember picking up, there was another football game, and I picked Zachary up from that football game. And when he got in the car, um, he kind of just looked like dazed and confused. You know, I could tell he was high. And I asked him, you know, like, are you high? He tried to lie to me. No, no. So anyways, he finally admitted to me that he was high and being the mom, you know, I raging lunatic is what I felt like at the moment. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, do you know what this can lead you up to? There's harder drugs. And so I'm like throwing the book of drugs at them. You know, if you try cocaine, if you try heroin, like those are things you may never come back from. And, and I remember feeling really scared for my kid at that point. But I realized that he was not listening to anything that I was saying at that point, I was like, you know what, like, I need to help him calm down. So I remember driving him up to McDonald's and being like, you have the munchies, what do you want? And he was like, four cheeseburgers and two Mc or four cheeseburgers and two McChickens. <laughs> so he kind of like, <laughs> ate it up, you know. Uh, so anyways, I noticed that, you know, through this month, he was spiraling, um, he wasn't being the Zachary that I, that I always knew. Like Zach was always this really happy, smiley, um, cheerful kid. And, and then that last month, he just seemed different. You know, he seemed angry um, and he seemed impulsive. He was making really impulsive decisions. Um, and so anyhow, one day it was a Sunday. Um, I, I had gotten the phone call, so I had put an offer on my farmhouse, and I had gotten the phone call telling me, congratulations, we've accepted your offer for this house, and so I was really happy, and, and I told the kids, I got to go give the, you know, I got to meet with the realtor, I got to go give them the earnest money check, and Zachary at that point was like, can I go hang out at the football field with my friends, and this was um, you know, it was a Sunday. So I'm like, no, you're up to no good. If you go hang out at the football field with your friends, you're just going to go get in trouble. So I remember him getting really upset about it. Went upstairs, he slammed his door. Um, I had just picked up fast food. So, you know, I told Kate, make sure your brothers eat. I got to go. I'll be right back. I got to sign this contract, you know, and I left to go meet with a realtor to sign the contract on the farm. And my, you know, what was supposed to be the happiest day of my life completely turned into my worst nightmare that day. So. So, um, so when you, 
and I know not not everyone listening knows knows what happened with Zach. Um, so when so when you came back home, um, that was where the nightmare begins, right? Um, yeah, I mean, well, it was so as I was leaving the farmhouse, um, you know, I had just called my mom and everybody like I'm super excited, you know. Sure. I- I got this farm, blah, blah, blah. Well, all of a sudden my phone rings as I'm heading back home. And I actually ended up taking a detour. I was with a friend and I wanted to see how far my job, you know, was going to be from the farm. And so we decided to take a detour and go see how far away the job was. And while we took this detour and we were on our way back home, I ended up getting a phone call from Kate and she was hysterical, you know, And um, I kept asking her like, Kate, what's going on? What's going on? Please talk to me. Um, And then she finally expressed to me that Zach was in trouble, um, that her and Lincoln, so the three kids were home alone and her and Lincoln had found their brother. Um, You know, he had, at the time we didn't know whether he was really gone or not, but he died by suicide that day. So you know, it was, um, I mean, the most painful thing I've ever been through in my entire life, you know, but trying the panic from it, trying to get home to my kids, you know, um, obviously I called 911 right away when I hung up on her, called 911 to try to get help over there. Um, and it turned out that if, you know, a couple people that we knew, by the grace of God, they had gotten this, you know, hey, we, we need to stop over at Laura's intuition. Um, so these two grownups were actually there before me trying to help Kate, you know, help their help her brother. Um, but when I got to the house, you know, the paramedics had just pulled up, like I pulled up right behind them. And I remember um, nobody allowing me to go upstairs. They were like, no, you're not going upstairs. And, and all I wanted to know is my son okay? You know, is he, is he alive? And nobody, you know, they were like, no, you're not going up there. You're not going up there. Well, finally they brought him down in a stretcher and I still had hope that he was okay. They had him hooked up to a manual breathing machine so that there was a paramedic, you know, manually pumping the air. Um, and I thought, okay, like he's okay. They're giving him oxygen. Like he's okay. You know? Um, then they transported him to the hospital and I wasn't allowed to ride with them. They told me no, but then the minute that we got to the hospital, the nurses had, you know, came in right away. Like you need to, you need to come back with us. Um, and so I was with my fiance. They took me and him to the room where Zach was. And the doctor looked at me and, you know, he says, I, I just want you to know we're trying everything, but you need to prepare for the worst. And within a few, I don't know, I can't tell you to this day if it was a few seconds, a few minutes, you know, um, but within what seemed like a few minutes, then they, the doctor finally called time of death. And um, it was just terrible. I mean, I remember um, going up to him and like holding his hand and, and hugging him and kissing him, but like just holding his hand. So when Zach and I would car dance, right? Cause you know, we love music. So we were big time car dancers. Um, 
often in our car rides, we would hold hands, you know? And so that's, that's what I did. I, I just held his hand until I couldn't hold his hand anymore, you know? So, so sorry. I can't even imagine um, what, what that, what that was like that day and what it continues to be like, um, you know, since then. Um, so, uh, so, so yeah, kind of, kind of, I mean, and I imagine that um, there's a, there's an element that it's not, it hasn't been two years yet, but we're coming up on the, the, the two year uh, mark. Um, so I imagine that there's, it's been a blur in, in a multitude of ways, but um, so what, are, what's it been like? Um, what, not what has it been like? Um, so, so what, how, how is Kate doing? How is Lincoln doing? How, how are you doing? Well, um, I mean, we're all learning how to live with it. So, you know, Kate, um, so Kate, when we go back to, you know, the history from her lifetime, she was taught from a very young age to withhold things. And, and even though I was always really open with my kids, you know, she was, I mean, she was pretty much always taught to keep things from me and to lie, right? From a very young age, not to lie, but just to, to, just to not tell me when she's going through something. And so that's been like the biggest struggle. We've been in counseling since this happened. I mean, even before this, the kids were in counseling because of the, the prior history, right? Um, but even, even within that, like she held it in, she held in all of that to herself for about a year. So for about a year, I didn't know, you know, the entire, like she hadn't ever walked me through that awful day, you know? She couldn't, she couldn't even talk to me about it. Um, and so I remember finally her walking me through that day about a year after Zach died. And it was as a mom, I mean, I already carried a lot of guilt, right? Carried a lot of guilt for finding out that she had been sexually abused um, and had to like learn how to fix that. So I feel like <clears throat> as a mom, I, I was always a fixer, you know? I fixed getting us away from a domestic violence situation. I fixed finding out that my daughter was being, you know, abused. Like I fixed those things. So I, you know, and I, and I assisted my kids with it and, and I thought that we were okay, but like, this was something that I couldn't fix. Mm -hmm. This was something that I couldn't, I had zero control over. Like Zach was never, ever going to come back. So the damage as far as like the trauma and the, the PTSD that it cost me from, from not being able to have that control of fixing it, you know, um, it, it was, it just, I, I was lost in darkness. Like I was completely lost for, for a long time. And it was my kids on top of it, you know, the guilt, they found their brother. Like I should have been home. Like they shouldn't have seen this like they now you know Lincoln um so it was you know Lincoln didn't cry for about a month after Zach died and I remember being a little bit disturbed like why isn't he crying but he was only six at the time so I don't think he really understood what happened you know and when reality finally hit because Zach was like not only was Zach his big brother but he was like a best friend to him I mean Zach 
took Lincoln with him and his friends everywhere. You know, they were always hanging out. Um, and so I think when it finally like really hit him, like I don't have my brother anymore to play video games with me, to teach me how to do backflips, to play the piano. Like when that finally hit him, then he just finally cried it out. Um, going back to now, I mean, I want to say that we're doing okay, but um, there, there's times when, when we're not okay, you know, and, and it's okay not to be okay, obviously, but it's, it's a learning process. Like we've all had to learn how to live with the new us carrying this, this traumatic event and the loss of their brother and the loss of my child. Like, I don't know. I don't know that we'll ever, I mean, there's never ever going to be a getting over this, you know, it's just learning to manage it and learning to live with it. Um, you know, so, you know, and I, and, and being, like you said, a fixer and, and that being the nature and your uh, tenacity that when you get knocked down, you know, or uh, regardless if it was when you were young, learning, teaching yourself how, you know, how to speak English and how to write English or, you know, creating a family, but then, then you had to go through the process of deconstructing that because it was so toxic and unhealthy. Um, I know that a lot of times we want to know why did something happen? Right. And, 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 and what I've come to learn about suicide is that it's, it's so complex. There's so many different layers. There's so many different variables that play into it. There may be something that's a tipping point, that 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 tips things over but it may um but but there's a there's a multitude of factors that play into it um that lead to that tipping point and then sometimes it can be a person doesn't necessarily they're impulsive they don't necessarily think all the way through um this means i'm never going to go to a football game again this means i'll never you know, do, do, you know, bring my brother at Halloween. You know I mean? It, it's, you know, there's a, there's a lot of aspects that we're in the midst of that darkness that um, they're thinking only about the immediacy of their pain, not necessarily about long, long-term. Um, and I that isn't in all cases, but in, in, I think in some cases it is. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, so Zach had impulsive, you know, an impulsive nature since he was little. Um, it, he was never diagnosed with depression, but he was diagnosed with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And so I oftentimes, I mean, that that diagnosis, you know, um, you're you're a hyper, you're an impulsive individual. I mean, that's that's that was Zach in a nutshell. You know, he was extremely extremely intelligent but he didn't often think about consequences. And so when he did this, you know, that was what I, I want, I, I wanted to know, you know, why, why did he do it? Why did he do it? And obviously I had to let, let go of the wanting to know the why, because I was never going to get the answer. Um, you know, I can try to speculate uh, and, and I could even go back to infancy, you know, after this, like I kind of just consumed myself and trying to learn because Suicide has such a, I don't think that people really think about suicide. At least I didn't. Speaking from my, you know, my personal experience before this happened to me, you know, you would hear of like a rock star taking their lives, like Chris Cornell, you know, or 
um, the lead singer from Lincoln Park. Like I remember hearing about them, but just being like, they had it all. Like, why would they, why would they do that? Like, why would they leave their, you know, family behind? And I kind of thought about it as, you know, a selfish act or a not, you know, I, I mean, I never understood it, but I never really thought about it. Right. It was just like a, like a pass by, you know, thought like why, and then moved on and that was it. So when it finally like struck me personally, then I started digging and then I started, you know, understanding that we need to, we need to talk about it. You know, it's becoming more and more common. Um, and I'm sure that there are people like me before, you know, it happened to me that they think about it. They don't talk about it. They don't, they don't realize that it can happen to anyone like suicide, mental illness. Like it doesn't discriminate. It doesn't care about your level of income, your level of education. If you have an underlined, you know, illness with your mental health, you know, it, it can affect anyone. And so that leads me to what my, my God-given purpose is. So like after Zach passed away, I consumed myself trying to figure out the why, you know, and the only answer I had was his phone or the only thing that I had to try to like give me answers was his cell phone. And so I became like really, really consumed with his social media. And I literally would go through every single message that he would send to kids, every conversation, every, you know, every text message, every Facebook message, whatever. I wanted to know why. And um, so I remember from like April of 2018 until September of 2018, when he passed away, he would randomly post things like, I feel so depressed right now. Somebody talked to me, you know, or I just don't want to live anymore. I want to kill myself. So he was, he was openly talking to his peers about it and, and making these types of posts. Um, and the reaction that kids would have, I think that, you know, sadly with like, and, and again, it's just, my own interpretation of it, but I think that we live in a society where people are numb to, to things like this, like the younger crowd is numb to it, you know? Um, and I feel like when my child was crying out for help, you know, kids didn't recognize that because they, you know, to them, it's just the norm maybe to say, Hey, I want myself today. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't, you know, but, but when that happened, when I started, seeing that I started posting in his Snapchat or on his Snapchat, like, you know, if you, if you're feeling sad today, please know that, you know, pain ends, like hold on pain ends, please have hope. Um, and, and I started posting messages to kids of hope to encourage them to want to live and to encourage them to open up. Like if they are struggling, reach out to an adult. You know, if you have a friend who's struggling, you know, who makes, who makes statements that they want to die, please reach out to an adult, reach out to somebody that you trust, whether it's a teacher, you know, a neighbor, a parent, a, a police officer, like whoever, just reach out. Um, and when I started doing that, kids started reaching out to me. And the conversation always started about Zach. You know, I knew Zach in school. He was amazing. It was this and this. And, and they would start telling me stories about him 
But in reality, it was them connecting to his feelings and connecting to what he had gone through to open up to me and tell me about their own struggles with depression and, and suicidal ideations. And so um, I, I believe that God was kind of like aligning that, you know, he was giving these kids an outlet through me, even though I didn't see it at that time. Um, but I see it so clearly now, like God was turning this awful traumatic story and using it for good to save other kids, to help them, encourage them, you know? And so all of this was going through in my darkest, darkest moments. Um, and it got to the point where like, I would contact parents, you know, Hey, your child like messaged me. I know you don't know me personally, but is there any way I can take him out to lunch? You know? Is there any way that I can sit with, you know, your son or your daughter to talk about my son and what he went through so that somehow maybe we can, you know, get them to open up more. And so I started taking kids out, hanging out with them. And the more that I sat down with them and the more that I talked to them, you know, and asked them, like, why do you, why do you want to die? I started getting answers that to me were like mind blowing. They would tell me, um, I, you know, my clothes don't fit in. I get made fun of in school for my clothes or I get made fun of for my haircut. And so to me, it was like, these are things not worth dying over. Right. But the pain to them was so real. And again, being a fixer, I was like, I can fix it. Let me take you shopping. You know, let me give you a haircut. Like it's okay. Um, but then I started, um, so I guess, when Zach died and I was at my darkest moment, um, I, I, like, I had developed my own depressive thoughts, my own thoughts of suicide. And I had been struggling big time, even throughout like this, this journey of me helping kids and telling kids to stay positive. You know, I was battling those thoughts and I would think, you know, like, I can't do this to Kate and Link. Like I can't leave them behind. And so when I realized like, Hey, I'm having these thoughts now, and I need help. Um, I, I remember one day just like throwing my hands up in the air and being like, if you're there, um, you know, God, if you exist, like just take the wheel. I don't want it. I don't want it anymore. And from that point forward, my life started changing. I started going to church. Um, and, and it was when I was talking to these kids and helping them, then I started realizing, you know what, like, Maybe I need to not just help save them here on earth, but I need to like plant that eternal seed of heaven into their minds to help and encourage them to like live out for their purpose, you know? And so it was pretty cool how everything came about mm -hmm. <laughs> through this, darkness. you know, there was, there was this light yeah. that was like instilled in me. Yeah. And even though it was in that darkness, I couldn't see it. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, I, I, I think that that opportunity in the darkness is almost always there, but there's times when that, when we're in that darkness, we do any, anything and everything just to try to get through it. So that's, we may, you know, some people get busy with work and some people, you know, get distracted with another relationship or get distracted with you know, um, just trying to make the pain go away, but it's constantly just the symptoms of it, not really 
that bigger thing. And I think, you know, what, what I heard you just say is that we call them protective factors in the counseling world. You know, what, what, what is, what's Laura's protective factors. So no matter how dark it got, you, you knew that there, you couldn't leave Kate and Lincoln. So that was a protective factor that put you in a double bind that no matter, no matter how dark it got, I couldn't do this. And because you knew the pain that you were going through and you know, all those things. So that doesn't, that may keep you safe or at least safe from hurting yourself, but it doesn't fix the problem there. Still, we still need to go through that. Like you said, finding your purpose, being able to uh, open yourself up to know, Oh, so this possibly is the meaning that came from this tragedy. And uh, David Kessler talks about the six stages of grieving and the sixth stage is, is meaning that, that because of this, horrific loss there is some level of uh, something bigger that's going to come from it that wouldn't have wouldn't have happened if this wouldn't have happened and um in in that like you like you said before it doesn't replace zach but it does allow there's a sense of mission or sense of purpose um that that um like, like you probably have said many times, you would rather exchange, you know, and have Zach back, but that isn't going to happen. So then what can we do to try to help other people so they don't make the same choice? So, Go ahead. Sorry. So, well, and so just, just, I, I know you have a lot, you know, you're still, you still work for, you still work for the city of Rockford. Is that correct? No. So, um, when, when Zach passed away, so I had, you know, I had just started a month before Zach passed, um, in this probationary period and with the city, you can't miss any time from work. Okay. I ended up losing my job from the city of Rockford, but, um, I, you know, within, uh, within this journey, um, and living in the farm and moving to the farm, I became a Christmas tree farmer by accident. You know, there were 1,500 Christmas trees on my farm, and I thought I was going to cut all of them down just to build stables and have more horses. But um, it had been an existing U-cut Christmas tree farm for 40 years. And so when we moved in, people, we moved in like the Monday before Thanksgiving and that Friday people started coming, cutting trees down. Um, and that was actually very healing being around people. Um, so then I have a building on my farm that um, I ended up during my grieving also rehabbing and turning into an event venue um, because I wanted people to continue coming to my farm throughout the year. Because what I noticed or what I was living through is sharing my story and having these people, you know, on my property, it was, it was just really healing for my children and I, you know, so I did that for about a year. Then the neighbors kind of put a kibosh on it. They put in a complaint with the city about noise. And so I've been fighting to be able to reopen um, for the last year. And so I have had to go back to work. I work um, currently for Carrie and Beloit. It's a, it's a supplying company. Um, uh, but on the, on the, on the side of things, um, I just currently opened, um, my own nonprofit organization called Marshmallow's Hope. And so Marshmallow was Zachary's nickname, um, and Hope 
you know, I saw it stands for hold, hold on pain ends. So uh, my hopes is that, you know, I can get that up and going and continue helping teens throughout the community and, and even nationwide. I mean, the outreach of kids, you know, and like you, you said it perfectly, I, there's not a day that I don't wish that my child was here with me. And I, I feel really selfish for wanting that, right? For wanting him to be here because he was hurting and, and he's not hurting anymore, right? But the, the, I'm just overwhelmed by God's greatness of turning this horrible thing in my life and, and using it for good. Like through Zachary, I feel like I'm saving kids from, from making the same choices. And I never, ever want any other mother to feel the pain that I feel, you know, or any other sibling to ever have to find their sibling like my kids did. And then have to carry that pain forever and just losing their sibling. Like I, I just can't live with the thought of somebody else having to carry this pain. So, you know, um, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that through my son's story, people are opening up and people are hearing us. And even if it's just one, Kevin, even if it's one life that, that we can save through Zach's story, like to me, that's, you know, it's worth it. It's amazing that so um and then the last thing that i worked on um was because i feel it's so important for our story to be heard um i actually just wrote a book called lost to darkness enlightened by grace and so on zach's second anniversary um passing anniversary which is september 16th the book's going to be coming out um we're doing a current pre-sale for it but it talks about the entire story of my life and and sex you know suicide um but it ends with our story of grace mm-hmm. which is our purpose my purpose Perfect. well it you have definitely an amazing story uh you know as you illustrated today talking about you know the whole the, the whole journey and obviously continuing now with even a greater conviction of what your purpose is. Um, in, even though it was in the midst of, you know, the tragedy of, of Zach's passing. Um, I just ordered your book yesterday. Um, so I, I'll be, uh, I'll be looking forward to, uh, to, to reading it. What would be the best way uh, if people wanted to either get a hold of you, um, you know, uh, learn more about uh, your, your nonprofit or, um, uh, uh, you know, find out about the book and how they can get a copy of the book. What's the best way for people to reach you? Well, I'm on Facebook, Laura Gabriella. Um, and that's G-A-B-R-I-E-L-A. So people can contact me on there. Also, um, lost to darkness help at gmail.com. Um, people can reach me through, through that. And then on Google, if they just, you know, Google marshmallows, hope nonprofit organization, um, we're getting our website up and going, but there there's contact information to get in touch with us for the nonprofit as well. So Perfect. Well, thank you very much. If there was one thing that you wanted to leave the listeners with, what what would be something that you'd want to leave the listeners with? Um, Never give up. Never give up. Um, Even even through your pain, um, or it doesn't matter what life, you know, what journey you are today 
in your life or what chapter of your life you're on. Um, just know that you were created for a purpose and, and no matter what you're going through, you can overcome it. You just have to push through and keep living and you'll, you know, that's, I just hope that, um, I'm able to inspire you to just continue, continue on, you know? Oh, great. Laura, thank you very much you. for, <laughs> thank you very much for having the courage. I know it's not easy, even though you've, you've shared your story before. I know it's not easy to talk about, um, to talk about it. And um, so I appreciate the, the vulnerability as well as just you having the courage to, to come on and on this platform and talk about it. And I'm looking forward to uh, sometime coming out and seeing, seeing your farm as well as um, uh, reading, reading your story in, in, in the book. So thank you again for being with us. And um, again, I look forward to getting the book and, and hopefully being able to connect sometime uh, when, when COVID is uh, maybe, uh, or at least social distancing, we can maybe somehow in the near future connect. So. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Kevin, so much for giving me the opportunity to share our story on the journey. Yeah. Uh, and thank you for everything that you do for our community. Not a problem. Thanks, Laura. We'll, we'll be talking Thanks. to you soon. Okay. All right. Thank you.